0: CHAPTER Twelve of The Uncommercial Traveller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Uncommercial Traveller. By Charles Dickens. D'Alborough Town. It lately happened that I found myself rambling about the scenes, among which my earliest days were passed, scenes from which I departed when I was a child, and which I did not revisit until I was a man. This is no uncommon chance, but one that befalls some of us any day. Perhaps it may not be quite uninteresting to compare notes with the reader, respecting an experience so familiar and a journey so uncommercial. I call my boyhood's home, and I feel like a tenor in an English opera when I mention it, Dalborough. Most of us come from Dalborough, who come from a country town. As I left Dalborough in the days when there were no railroads in the land, I left it in a stage-coach. Through all the years that have since passed, have I ever lost the smell of the damp straw in which I was packed, like game, and forwarded carriage-paid, to the Cross Keys Wood Street, Cheapside, London. There was no other inside passenger, and I consumed my sandwiches in solitude and dreariness, and it rained hard all the way, and I thought life sloppier than I had expected to find it. With this tender remembrance upon me, I was cavalierly shunted back into Dalborough the other day by train. My ticket had been previously collected, like my taxes and my shining new portmanteau had had a great plaster stuck upon it and i had been defied by act of parliament to offer an objection to anything that was done to it or me under penalty of not less than 40 shillings or more than 5 pounds compoundable for a term of imprisonment when i had sent my disfigured property on to the hotel i began to look about me and the first discovery i made was that the station had swallowed up the playing field It was gone! The two beautiful hawthorn trees, the hedge, the turf, and all those buttercups and daisies, had given place to the stoniest of jolting roads, while beyond the station an ugly, dark monster of a tunnel kept its jaws open, as if it had swallowed them, and were ravenous for more destruction. The coach that had carried me away was melodiously called Timpson's Blue-Eyed Maid, and belonged to Timpson at the coach office up street the locomotive engine that had brought me back was called severely number 97 and belonged to s e r and was spitting ashes and hot water over the blighted ground when i had been let out at the platform door like a prisoner whom his turnkey grudgingly released i looked in again over the low wall at the scene of departed glories here in the haymaking time had I been delivered from the dungeons of Seringapatam, an immense pile of haycock, by my own countrymen, the victorious British, boy next door and his two cousins, and had been recognized with ecstasy by my affianced one, Miss Green, who had come all the way from England, second house in the terrace, to ransom me and marry me. Here had I first heard in confidence from one whose father was greatly connected, being under government, of the existence of a terrible banditti called the radicals whose principles were that the prince regent wore stays and that nobody had a right to any salary and that the army and navy ought to be put down horrors at which i trembled in my bed after supplicating that the radicals might be speedily taken and hanged here too had we the small boys of bolses had that cricket match against the small boys of colses when Bowles and Coles had actually met upon the ground, and when, instead of instantly hitting out at one another, with the utmost fury, as we had all hoped and expected, those sneaks had said respectively, I hope Mrs. Bowles is well, and I hope Mrs. Coles and the baby are doing charmingly. Could it be that after all this and much more, the playing field was a station, and numbers ninety-seven expectorated boiling water and red-hot cinders on it, and the whole belonged by Act of Parliament to S.E.R. As it could be, and was, I left the place with a heavy heart, for a walk all over the town, and first of Timpson's up street. When I departed from Delborough in the straw arms of Timpson's blue-eyed maid, Timpson's was a moderate-sized coach-office, in fact a little coach-office, with an oval transparency in the window, which looked beautiful by night representing one of Timpson's coaches, in the act of passing a milestone on the London road with great velocity, completely full inside and out, and all the passengers dressed in the first style of fashion, and enjoying themselves tremendously. I found no such place as Timpson's now, no such bricks and rafters, not to mention the name, no such edifice on the teeming earth. Pickford had come and knocked Timpson's down— Pickford had not only knocked Timpsons down, but had knocked two or three houses down on each side of Timpsons, and then had knocked the whole into one great establishment, with a pair of big gates, in and out of which his Pickford's wagons are, in these days, always rattling, with their drivers sitting up so high that they look in at the second-floor windows of the old-fashioned houses in the high street, as they shake the town. I have not the honour of Pickford's acquaintance. But I felt that he had done me an injury, not to say committed an act of boy-slaughter, in running over my childhood in this rough manner, and if ever I meet Pickford driving one of his own monsters, and smoking a pipe the while, which is the custom of his men, he shall know by the expression of my eye, if it catches his, that there is something wrong between us. Moreover, I felt that Pickford had no right to come rushing into Dalborough, and deprive the town of a public picture. He is not Napoleon Bonaparte. When he took down the transparent stage-coach, he ought to have given the town a transparent van. With a gloomy conviction that Pickford is wholly utilitarian and unimaginative, I proceeded on my way. It is a mercy I have not a red and green lamp and a night-bell at my door, for in my very young days I was taken to so many lyings-in. "'that I wonder I escaped becoming a professional martyr to them in after-life. "'I suppose I had a very sympathetic nurse, "'with a large circle of married acquaintance. "'However that was, as I continued my walk through Dalborough, "'I found many houses to be solely associated in my mind "'with this particular interest. "'At one little greengrocer's shop, down certain steps from the street, "'I remember to have waited on a lady who had had four children.' I am afraid to write five, though I fully believe it was five, at her birth. This meritorious woman held quite a reception in her room on the morning when I was introduced there, and the sight of the house brought vividly to my mind how the four, five, deceased young people lay, side by side, on a clean cloth on a chest of drawers, reminding me by a homely association, which I suspect their complexion to have assisted, of pig's feet, "'as they are usually displayed at a neat tripe-shop. "'Hot candle was handed round on the occasion, "'and I further remembered, "'as I stood contemplating the greengrocers, "'that a subscription was entered into among the company, "'which became extremely alarming to my consciousness "'of having pocket-money on my person. "'This fact being known to my conductress, whoever she was, "'I was earnestly exhorted to contribute, "'but resolutely declined, "'though in disgusting the company.' gave me to understand that I must dismiss all expectations of going to heaven. How does it happen that when all else is changed wherever one goes, there yet seem in every place to be some few people who never alter as the sight of the greengrocer's house recalled these trivial incidents of long ago. The identical greengrocer appeared on the steps with his hands in his pockets and leaning his shoulder against the door-post as my childish eyes had seen him many a time. Indeed, there was his old mark on the door-post yet, as if his shadow had become a fixture there. It was he himself. He might formerly have been an old-looking young man, or he might now be a young-looking old man, but there he was. In walking along the street I had as yet looked in vain for a familiar face, or even a transmitted face. Here was the very green grocer who had been weighing and handling baskets on the morning of the reception. As he brought with him a dawning remembrance that he had had no proprietary interest in those babies, I crossed the road, and accosted him on the subject. He was not in the least excited or gratified, or in any way roused, by the accuracy of my recollection, but said, "'Yes, somewhat out of the common.' He didn't remember how many it was, as if half a dozen babes either way made no difference, had happened to a Mrs. What's-her-name, as once lodged there. But he didn't call it to mine particular. Nettled by this phlegmatic conduct, I informed him that I had left the town when I was a child. He slowly returned, quite unsoftened, and not without a sarcastic kind of complacency. Had I? Ah! And did I find it had got on tolerably well without me? Such is the difference, I thought, when I had left him a few hundred yards behind, and was by so much in a better temper, between going away from a place and remaining in it. I had no right, I reflected, to be angry with the greengrocer for his want of interest. I was nothing to him, whereas he was the town, the cathedral, the bridge, the river, my childhood, and a large slice of my life, to me. Of course, the town had shrunk fearfully since I was a child there. I had entertained the impression that the High Street was at least as wide as Regent Street, London, or the Italian Boulevard at Paris. I found it little better than a lane. There was a public clock in it, which I had supposed to be the finest clock in the world, whereas it now turned out to be as inexpressive, moon-faced, and weak a clock as ever I saw. It belonged to a town hall where I had seen an Indian, who I now suppose wasn't an Indian, swallow a sword, which I now suppose he didn't. The edifice had appeared to me in those days so glorious a structure that I had set it up in my mind as the model on which the genie of the lamp built the palace for Aladdin. A mean little brick heap, like a demented chapel with a few yawning persons in leather gaiters, and in the last extremity for something to do, lounging at the door with their hands in their pockets, when calling themselves a corn-exchange. The theatre was in existence, I found, on asking the fishmonger, who had a compact show of stock in his window, consisting of a sole and a quart of shrimps, and I resolved to comfort my mind by going to look at it. Richard III, in a very uncomfortable cloak, had first appeared to me there, and had made my heart leap with terror by backing up against the stage-box in which I was posted. While struggling for life against the virtuous richman, it was within those walls that I had learnt, as from a page of English history, how that wicked king slept in war time on a sofa much too short for him, and how fearfully his conscience troubled his boots. There too had I first seen the funny countryman, but countryman of noble principles, in a flowered waistcoat, crunch up his little hat, and throw it on the ground and pull off his coat, saying. "'Dom thee, squire, come on with thy fist, then,' at which the lovely young woman who kept company with him, and who went out gleaning in a narrow white muslin apron with five beautiful bars, or five different coloured ribbons across it, was so frightened for his sake that she fainted away. Many wondrous secrets of nature had I come to the knowledge of in that sanctuary, of which not the least terrific were that the witches in Macbeth bore an awful resemblance to the Thanes and other proper inhabitants of Scotland, and that the good King Duncan couldn't rest in his grave, but was constantly coming out of it and calling himself somebody else. To the theatre, therefore, I repaired for consolation. But I found very little, for it was in a bad and declining way. A dealer in wine and bottled beer had already squeezed his trade into the box-office, and the theatrical money was taken, when it came, in a kind of meat-safe in the passage. The dealer in wine and bottled beer must have insinuated himself under the stage too, for he announced that he had various descriptions of alcoholic drinks in the wood, and there was no possible stowage for the wood anywhere else. Evidently he was by degrees eating the establishment away to the core, and would soon have sole possession of it. It was to let, and hopelessly so, for its old purposes, and there had been no entertainment within its walls for a long time, except a panorama, and even that had been announced as pleasingly instructive, and I know too well the fatal meaning and the leaden import of those terrible expressions. No, there was no comfort in the theatre. It was mysteriously gone, like my own youth. Unlike my own youth, it might be coming back some day, but there was little promise of it. As the town was placarded with references to the Dalborough Mechanics Institution, I thought I would go and look at that establishment next. There had been no such thing in the town in my young day, and it occurred to me that its extreme prosperity might have brought adversity upon the drama. I found the institution with some difficulty, and should scarcely have known that I had found it, if I had judged from its external appearance only. But this was attributable to its never having been finished, and having no front. Consequently, it led a modest and retired existence up a stable-yard. It was, as I learnt on inquiry, a most flourishing institution, and of the highest benefit to the town. Two tramps, which I was glad to understand, were not at all impaired by the seeming drawbacks that no mechanics belonged to it, and that it was steeped in debt to the chimney-pots. It had a large room, which was approached by an infirm step-ladder, the builder having declined to construct the intended staircase without a present payment in cash, which Dalborough, though profoundly appreciative of the institution, seemed unaccountably bashful about subscribing. The large room had cost, or would when paid for, five hundred pounds, and it had more mortar in it and more echoes than one might have expected to get for the money. It was fitted up with a platform, and the usual lecturing tools, including a large blackboard, of a menacing appearance. On referring to lists of the courses of lectures that had been given in this thriving hall, I fancied I detected a shyness in admitting that human nature, when at leisure, has any desire whatever to be relieved and diverted, and a furtive sliding in of any poor make-weight piece of amusement, shamefacedly and edgewise. Thus I observed that it was necessary for the members to be knocked on the head with gas air water food the solar system the geological periods criticism on milton the steam engine john bunyan and arrow-headed inscriptions before they might be tickled by those unaccountable choristers the negro singers in the court costume of the reign of george the second likewise that they must be stunned by a weighty inquiry whether there was internal evidence in shakespeare's works to prove that his uncle by the mother's side lived for some years at stoke newington before they were brought to by a miscellaneous concert but indeed the masking of entertainment and pretending it was something else as people mask bedsteads when they are obliged to have them in sitting rooms and make believe that they are bookcases sofas chests of drawers anything rather than bedsteads was manifest even in the pretence of dreariness that the unfortunate entertainers themselves felt obliged in decency to put forth when they came here one very agreeable professional singer who travelled with two professional ladies knew better than to introduce either of those ladies to sing the ballad coming through the rye without prefacing it himself with some general remarks on wheat and clover and even then he dared not for his life call the song a song but disguised it in the bill as an illustration in the library also fitted with shelves for three thousand books, and containing upwards of one hundred and seventy, presented copies mostly, seething their edges in damp plaster. There was such a painfully apologetic return of sixty-two offenders, who had read travels, popular biography, and mere fiction descriptive of the aspirations of the hearts and souls of mere human creatures like themselves, and such an elaborate parade of two bright examples, who had had down Euclid after the day's occupation and confinement, and three who had had down metaphysics after Ditto, and one who had had down theology after Ditto, and four who had worried grammar, political economy, botany and logarithms all at once after Ditto, that I suspected the boasted class to be one man, who had been hired to do it. Emerging from the mechanics institution, and continuing my walk about the town, I still noticed everywhere the prevalence, to an extraordinary degree of this custom of putting the natural demand for amusement out of sight, as some untidy housekeepers put dust, and pretending that it was swept away. And yet it was ministered to, in a dull and abortive manner, by all who made this feint. Looking in at what is called in Dulborough the serious booksellers, where in my childhood I had studied the faces of numbers of gentlemen depicted in rostrums, with a gaslight on each side of them, and casting my eyes over the open pages of certain printed discourses there, I found a vast deal of aiming at jocosity and dramatic effect, even in them. Yes, verily, even on the part of one very wrathful expounder, who bitterly anathematized a poor little circus. Similarly, in the reading provided for the young people enrolled in the lasso of love, and other excellent unions, "'I found the writers generally under a distressing sense "'that they must start at all events, like storytellers, "'and delude the young persons into the belief "'that they were going to be interesting. "'As I looked in at this window for twenty minutes by the clock, "'I am in a position to offer a friendly remonstrance, "'not bearing on this particular point, "'to the designers and engravers of the pictures in those publications. "'Have they considered the awful consequences likely to flow?' from their representations of virtue, have they asked themselves the question, whether the terrific prospect of acquiring that fearful chubbiness of head, unwieldiness of arm, feeble dislocation of leg, crispiness of hair, and enormity of shirt-collar, which they represent as inseparable from goodness, may not tend to confirm sensitive waverers in evil? A most impressive example, if I had believed it of what a dustman and a sailor may come to when they mend their ways, was presented to me in this same shop-window. When they were leaning, they were intimate friends, against a post, drunk and reckless, with surpassingly bad hats on, and their hair over their foreheads. They were rather picturesque, and looked as if they might be agreeable men, if they would not be beasts. But when they had got over their bad propensities, and when, as a consequence, their heads had swelled alarmingly, their hair had got so curly that it lifted their blown-out cheeks up. Their coat-cuffs were so long that they never could do any work, and their eyes were so wide open that they never could do any sleep. They presented a spectacle calculated to plunge a timid nature into the depths of infamy, but the clock that had so degenerated since I saw it last had admonished me that I had stayed here long enough. And I resumed my walk. I had not gone fifty paces along the street, when I was suddenly brought up by the sight of a man, who got out of a little phaeton at the doctor's door, and went into the doctor's house. Immediately the air was filled with the scent of trodden grass, and the perspective of years opened, and at the end of it was a little likeness of this man keeping a wicket, and I said, "'God bless my soul! Joe Specks!' Through many changes and much work I had preserved a tenderness for the memory of Joe, forasmuch as we had made the acquaintance of Roderick Random together, and had believed him to be no ruffian, but an ingenuous and engaging hero, scorning to ask the boy left in the Phaeton whether it was really Joe, and scorning even to read the brass plate on the door, so sure was I. I rang the bell, and informed the servant-maid that a stranger sought audience of Mr. Speck's. Into a room, half surgery, half study, I was shown to await his coming, and I found it, by a series of elaborate accidents bestrewn with testimonies to joe portrait of mr specks bust of mr specks silver cup from grateful patient to mr specks presentation sermon from local clergyman dedication poem from local poet dinner card from local nobleman tract on balance of power from local refugee inscribed homage de l'auteur Specks. when my old school fellow came in and i informed him with a smile that i was not a patient He seemed rather at a loss to perceive any reason for smiling in connection with that fact, and inquired to what was he to attribute the honour. I asked him, with another smile, could he remember me at all? He had not, he said, that pleasure. I was beginning to have a poor opinion of Mr. Speck's when he said reflectively, And yet there's a something too. Upon that I saw a boyish light in his eyes that looked well and I asked him if he could inform me, as a stranger who desired to know, and had not the means of reference at hand, what the name of the young lady was who married Mr. Random. Upon that he said, Narcissa. And after staring for a moment, called me by my name, shook me by the hand, and melted into a roar of laughter. "'Why, of course, you'll remember Lucy Green,' he said, after we had talked a little. "'Of course,' said I. "'Whom do you think she married?' said he. "'You?' I hazarded. "'Me,' said Spex, "'and you shall see her.' So I saw her, and she was fat. And if all the hay in the world had been heaped upon it, it could scarcely have altered her face more than time had altered it, from my remembrance of the face that had once looked down upon me, into the fragrant dungeons of Seringapatam. But when her youngest child came in after dinner, for I dined with them, and we had no other company than Spex, Junior, Barrister at law who went away as soon as the cloth was removed to look after the young lady to whom he was going to be married next week, I saw again in that little daughter the little face of the hayfield unchanged, and it quite touched my foolish heart. We talked immensely, Specks and Mrs. Specks and I, and we spoke of our old selves as though our old selves were dead and gone, and indeed, indeed they were, dead and gone as the playing field that had become a wilderness of rusty iron and the property of S.E.R. Spex, however, illuminated Dulborough with the rays of interest that I wanted, and should otherwise have missed in it, and linked its present to its past with a highly agreeable chain. And in Spex society I had new occasion to observe what I had before noticed in similar communications among other men. All the school-fellows and others of old whom I inquired about had either done superlatively well or superlatively ill had either become uncertificated bankrupts, or been felonious and got themselves transported, or had made great hits in life, and done wonders. As this is so commonly the case that I never can imagine what becomes of all the mediocre people of people's youth, especially considering that we find no lack of the species in our maturity. And this is so commonly the case. But I did not propound this difficulty to Specks, for no pause in the conversation gave me an occasion nor could I discover one single flaw in the good doctor. When he reads this, he will receive in a friendly spirit the pleasantly meant record, except that he had forgotten his Roderick Random, and that he confounded Strap with Lieutenant Hatchway, who never knew Random, howsoever intimate with Pickle. When I went alone to the railway, to catch my train at night, Specks had meant to go with me, but was inopportunely called out, I was in a more charitable mood with Dalborough than I had been all day and yet in my heart I had loved it all day too. Ah, who was I that I should quarrel with the town for being changed to me, when I myself had come back so changed to it? All my early readings and early imaginations dated from this place, and I took them away so full of innocent construction and guileless belief, and I brought them back so worn and torn, so much the wiser, and so much the worse. End of chapter 12